Hello, and welcome to Standing in the Stream, a podcast for and about creative people. I'm your host, John Lane. We are back to hear the conclusion of my conversation with award-winning poet Nick Lance. How to Dance as the Roof Caves In, his third book, was recently published by Grey Wolf Press and featured on NPR's All Things Considered. His writing has appeared in a number of literary journals and also featured on the Writer's Almanac with Garrison Keillor. Nick is a colleague of mine at Sam Houston State University in Huntsville, Texas. He joined me in my home studio, and here is part two of our conversation. Okay, uh, do you, I know you have some po- some more poems there. Yeah, Perhaps I can read you one that's maybe not so grim or doesn't have like it's not loaded with curse words or, <laughs> I was just or thinking- horrible thoughts. <laughs> I was just thinking about this because, like, my the podcast is not marked like explicit lyrics. I'm gonna have to go mark this one explicit. <laughs> or um... I had a really mortifying moment when I, I was in college when uh, I was invited to read on a local radio station, and I never really thought about this before. And I dropped like three f bombs in the course of reading a poem, <laughs> and I just saw like the host's face go white. <laughs> so well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is a podcast though right yeah. you're not going to get any fcc fines not going to get any fcc right. fines but they do have to you do have to actually like yeah. market like yeah you know yeah otherwise you get flagged yeah 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 uh all right so i'll read uh this this, po- this is a podcast for kids yeah for crying out loud <laughs> well someone please think of the children <laughs> uh, so I'll, I'll read this uh poem it's called uh post-humanism um, and I actually, I'll talk a little bit about um, maybe where the poem came from first. Okay. Um, because again, this is one of those sort of source material projects that didn't quite pan out. I was really interested in the idea of um, recording animals and then playing those recordings for voice recognition software. Um, you know, that you have like, uh, you know, Google Voice, like if you leave a phone message on it, it will try to translate it into text. And there are a lot of these programs and they often do an imperfect job. And so I wondered what they would do with sort of animal noises. And um, I had a couple of promising starts with um, some birds, but then when I got into other animals, it would just be unable to translate it or it would just produce something that was uninteresting gibberish. But the one thing that I found... um, that it did translate consistently was it would often translate animals as saying the word hey, (laughs) which I thought was weirdly accurate that like that really boils down to that's what most of what animals are saying most of the time. So some form of the word hey, like either, oh, hey, or, you know, more a more aggressive hey or something like that. So so you'll sort of see where that comes in at the end of this poem. But um, anyway, post-humanism. In the good old days, the lords summering in the country paid peasants to beat the ponds with branches all night so the frogs would stay silent. Armstrong and Aldrin left snow angels and moon dust. Foxes waited patiently around the shoulders of the high-born ladies drowning with the Titanic. The emperor's clockwork nightingale sang only top 40 classic rock. But one evening... So many starlings roosted on the hands of the town clock. Time stopped for six minutes. We should have known then. Just last week, 
a moose stopped in the middle of Main Street. A driver rolled down his window. Hey, he shouted. Hey, said a blue jay on a mailbox. Hey, said a squirrel to a dog. Hey, said the driver. Hey, said the dog. Hey, said the driver. Hey, said the bees. Hey, said the flower. Hey, said everybody. Hey. So. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Um, Fascinating that yeah. animal calls are translated. It's just like, <laughs> hey, <laughs> hey, buddy. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty interesting. Yeah. Hmm. One of the things that I'm interested to explore with this podcast is the intersection of the different arts. So we've talked about our uh, one of our or a couple of our collaborations, but I'm real interested in one that you told me about uh, with the American Sign Language. Uh, you yeah. worked with a composer to make an opera. Yeah. But part of the opera was in ASL. Yeah. So that was another instance where, um, you know, it was collaborative, but I was coming up with the text fairly much on my own. Um, I'd signed on to um, write a sort of libretto slash script for an experimental opera. Some friends of mine knew a soprano who was at the time dating a deaf, deaf actor. And so they thought, well, gee, they're, they're both artists, but obviously they work in such different mediums. Um, sort of like, how do you make that connection? And so they wanted right. to do some sort of theater piece together. And so my friends who are a couple and they're a director and a composer had been doing some devised work and sort of meeting with them, but they didn't really have anything um, coming together. And so they brought me in and sort of talked to me about the project. And so I pitched them an idea, which is sort of a, it's sort of like a creation myth fairy tale um, that talks about sort of the origins of language. And so the idea was that um, the soprano would sort of be on her island that's conceived as sort of two islands. Um, and she would be singing and then the man would be on his island using sign language. And so there were a number of technical challenges to this, but um, one of the interesting challenges was sort of writing text that the composer would then take and turn into a musical form, and then writing text that the actor would take and translate into ASL, um, which ASL is a really fascinating language because it has a much more limited vocabulary than English, but it's much more expressive and... Um, something as simple as, you know, signing the word bird, right? There are so many different ways that you can embody that sign um, that influence the way it reads. You know, there's, you know, I'm writing something and I have, you know, 10 different species of bird in it, right? You know, starlings and swallows and crows. And, you know, there aren't individual signs for all of those different birds in ASL. Yeah. But you can convey like the personality and demeanor and intention of the bird in the way you sign the one simple sign for bird. Right. Ah. So it, it created all these interesting challenges where um, Robert, the actor would sort of read what I had written and sort of come back to me with notes of like, well, this is sort of difficult to express. And then we would work out a way I could sort of rewrite it. And then he would adapt that to sign language, but he was also sort of creating sort of neologisms, like sort of signs for that specific text. And so that once he'd established them, um, 
you know, he could just use those within the show. Hmm. Um, and so again, it was, it's a much more flexible language than I think English is, um, even though that in some ways it might appear sort of more limited. And so it was a fascinating project because we were working in sort of the mediums of spoken language, music, and sign language, um, and trying to make all those things interact on stage. Um, it was it was fascinating. Yeah, um, it sounds and, fascinating. And we didn't really have a model to go on either, so we were just kind of making that genre up as we went, wow. um, which is both a good and a bad thing. <laughs> so you mentioned to me that... Um, I'm just thinking of the connection with this uh, topic and theater. Mm -hmm. uh, you had mentioned to me that playwriting was something that you is sort of a secondary yeah. um, creative outlet for you. Uh, so did, did working with uh, in this way, <clears throat> was it, was this before or after you gotten into playwriting or yeah. did, did you already have an interest in writing sort of theatrical pieces or yeah I'd gotten into playwriting in college um, my roommate had persuaded me to take a playwriting class with him um, and I did and I really fell in love with it it's a it's a very different form of writing than the other genres I've written in I've written fiction nonfiction and poetry um, and playwriting is it's it's really its own separate thing um, you know I like to say that like a poem can be complete on the page but a play isn't complete until it's on the stage, until it's embodied physically. Um, and so that, that's the, the biggest difference. And in, in a poem, I'm often sort of creating a sort of a space for the mind to inhabit. But in a play, I'm always thinking about sort of how will this play out physically, you know, a space for the body to inhabit. Um, and so I, I've always been really interested in the, the sort of physicality of it. And it's also inherently collaborative in a way that poetry isn't right you know there's always a collaboration between you know reader and author um, but with a play you have so many steps between author and audience that you have designers and directors and actors um, all sort of working together to create something and so there's a lot more sort of push and pull and playwriting in terms of what I'm doing and sort of who I have to make happy okay. you know um, I, with a poem, it's like I write what I write and then it sort of works or it doesn't. Right. right. Um, but in playwriting, you know, there are all these challenges to meet where, you know, maybe there are constraints of um, budget or space mm -hmm. or personnel um, or just the varying tastes or interests of uh, the group. So, for example, um, in this uh, ASL opera that I worked on, we talked a lot about how we might embody other characters on stage. The two main performers would be the opera singer and the deaf actor. Um, but we wanted sort of other characters on stage and we struggled a bit with how to do that. In the end, we used um, puppets, right? And that was partly a decision based on the interests of the people involved and also just monetary constraints. Um, and so in the end, I, I ended up sort of writing with that in mind that the, you know, that the, their sort of companions on their islands would all be done through puppetry. Um, and so that, that isn't something I would have necessarily arrived at without that kind of sort of push and pull of the collaborative process. And then of course, you know, there's so many ways in which a text can be interpreted on stage. And if you're a playwright who's sort of working closely with the production, 
you know, you have a hand in that. Um, if you're not working closely with the production, you know, that can go in all kinds of ways that you wouldn't expect or necessarily even like. Um, but at a certain point, you have to trust other people to make interesting choices with your work. Sure. Which I like a lot. Well, I think that's, uh, I mean, I think there's a parallel there to people that are, uh, that composers who are writing music. You know, I, I don't, I didn't ask you if you had written a play without having a specific group of collaborators in mind to produce this play, just yeah. writing a play for, for its, for its own sake. Yeah. Uh, you know, often when, you know, a music was a composer writes a piece and they have, they have, uh, you know, music's this really ephemeral art. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you compose a piece, you want to try to get as much information on the page as humanly possible mm -hmm. so that when it's performed, it sounds like the music that you have in your mind. Yeah. And to the extent that you're successful at that or, or not, you yeah. know, there are a lot of variables there. Yeah. Uh, and you do have to depend on the performer yeah. to what what would be the right way to say it to do their due diligence yeah. to understand what you, what the intention yeah. of the composer uh was yeah well it's interesting there's um a great book called backwards and forwards by david ball it's a book about um sort of play analysis and in it he says he uses hamlet as sort of his key text and he says well we don't really know much about hamlet right we don't know what he looks like we don't know how he moves in the space you know we know what he says yeah. You know, we have a few bare stage directions about him, but so much of like who he is as a person, how he's embodied is left up to the performer. Mm. Right. Um, and so I think that's a definite difference with playwriting, too, is that, I mean, you can think about um, playwrights like, say, Samuel Beckett, who is very sort of fastidious and specific in right. his stage directions. But even then, looking at that, there's a sort of spareness to it like there's all this sort of blank space to be filled in by the performers um and the specific way in which that's done really you know can vary from performance to performance and this is how you get you know someone setting you know shakespeare in the roaring 20s and then someone sh yeah. sets shakespeare in like the sci-fi future and like then someone sets shakespeare in the caribbean and yeah. you know you can do all that because of that flexibility in uh -huh. playwriting um and sort of going back to your question i I have written pieces that I didn't have any idea of like, well, someone specific might perform this in a particular way. And most of those occurred in classroom contexts where I was assigned to write a play like that in college. Most of the plays that I felt have been successful have been ones where I had a particular production or group of people in mind as I wrote it. I've written a lot of plays for 24 hour play festivals where you have a sense of sort of the constraints of time and personnel. Um, and you may even know some of the actors and directors who may be working with you. Um, and so that that can be helpful. You know, I've written plays that uh, my wife, Vicki Lance, has directed. And that's been a lot of fun to sort of collaborate with her um, because I know she sort of understands my sensibility but has a lot of better ideas about how to actually enact that on stage. So I know I can give her a play that has fairly minimal stage directions and she'll do something really interesting with that mm -hmm. in terms of how it's blocked out and visualized and, you know, achieved. One of the things that I want to make sure we talk about today is something that you wrote to me in our sort of conversations before today. 
about success in the creative life, uh, particularly as it relates to what you do in poetry. Mm-hmm. And uh, the specific quote that you wrote to me was, and this was in an email recently, you said, it's some mixture of talent, persistence, and luck that conspires to make anyone quote-unquote successful. And I noted that every time you wrote the word success or successful, it was always in quotes, yeah. which is very telling, of yeah. course, and, and of course, on purpose. Yeah. Uh, so what I'm getting from you is that there is a sort of conventional wisdom yeah. that says success for poets is, okay, you, you go get an MFA, you win some fellowships and awards, then you get published, and then you get that tenure track teaching job, and yeah. then that leads to to more opportunities, and then you yeah. you know, so so that's what success looks like yeah. <laughs> for a poet, and yeah. and that's sort of what what I understand is sort of the conventional wisdom, uh, but all of that seems sort of put upon yeah. uh, people, yeah, and so maybe you can help uh, define success, sure, in a different way. I mean, I guess in the cornier answer would be that, you know, every once in a while I'll get an email from some random stranger who read one of my poems online and really responded to it. And they'll just write to say, oh, you know, I really like this poem. You know, it resonated with me for such and such a reason. And that to me, in a lot of ways, feels more successful than um, some of the more obvious things like publishing books, getting jobs, getting fellowships, um, because that's the kind of experience that drew me into poetry in the first place, that I read a poem and I responded to it and I sort of got hooked by it and changed by it. And that connects to sort of the reason I initially started writing poetry is to have that experience more often and to create that experience for people. Um, I think at the same time, my creative practice gets sort of yoked to my professional life as, you know, a professor. And so now success can also mean, you know, the kinds of things I have to do in order to get tenure or or in order to get merit pay increases. So whereas before I wouldn't have particularly cared about whether or not a poem was published, say, online or in a print magazine, And in fact, my experience has been that the online publications tend to sort of have more legs, more people tend to read them, or at least it's more possible. Um, I think for the purposes of my tenure file, the print publication is better. Um, And so then I also start thinking about that with books, like with my recent collection um, of poems about animals. You know, part of me was like, well, I could just keep writing this book forever and it could be like a 400 page book about animal poems because it's just this unexhaustible source material for me. But then on the other hand, I'm like, no dummy, uh, you got to send that to your publisher and get that published. So it's in the, you know, in the queue for the old tenure file. Right. So I think that gets kind of muddied and I think in some ways, um, treat success, um, differently than what I would like it to be as just as an artist. The, The other thing to think about is, you know, the the sort of moving goalposts, right? That, okay, well, you get the book published. Well, now you got to get a fellowship or something. Well, you get the fellowship. Well, now you got to get like a tenure track job. Okay, now you get the tenure track job. You got to get tenure. Okay, well, but now you got to really win some big awards, right? You know, you got to, 
you got to get the the Guggenheim or the NEA or you know something even bigger, right? Yeah. And so that those those goalposts are always sort of receding into the distance in front of you, and I think that can be um, focusing on that can be a bad thing. And so that's partly what I mean by sort of success is that it's in quote marks is that it's always elusive. The other reason I put it in quote marks is I think what sort of counts for success for poets um, is so different than what counts for success for even other writers. Um, one of the the jokes I often like to tell is, you know, someone in my MFA program where I went to grad school, a fiction writer might get six figures for her first book. I would be happy to get $1,500 for my first book, <laughs> right? So, right? you know, and I would be overjoyed, <laughs> right, to get that. So I think, that, you know, that even on a monetary level, sort of what counts as a success for a poet is very different than it is just even for other writers necessarily. Yeah. Um, so I think that idea is very slippery. And, you know, I don't know any poet, any writer who I think sort of feels successful for long. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. you sort of you get that thing, whatever it is you've been sort of going after and then you realize, oh, I have to get up and write more poems tomorrow. You know, that that doesn't change. Um, and so those accomplishments, whatever they are, um, don't really provide the lasting satisfaction that you hope they would necessarily. Sure. Um, and there's that sort of like grasping after it that never really yeah. helps you. Yeah, that elusive carrot always yes. dangling out there somewhere. I think the Buddhists would have something to say about oh, that. <laughs> almost definitely, most definitely. And uh, Alan Watts comes to mind in talking about this. There's a, a very clever... Um, I think it's the guys, uh, tr uh, Matt Parker and Trey Stone. Mm -hmm. Is that, are those the South Park yeah, yeah. Uh, creators? They made this very clever animation to one of Alan Watts' uh, speeches. Uh -huh. And it's the story about the guy who, you know, he goes to school and it's really important that you get good grades so you can get into college. And then you go to college and work really hard and you get that degree. And then maybe you go to grad school Then you go to grad school and you work really hard because you want to get that job. And then you get that first job and then you got to make manager. So, you know, it, yeah. it, it keeps going up the stage and then he gets to 40 years old and he's at the top of his field or whatever. Mm -hmm. And um, I've arrived. Now what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and. I don't know if you felt this way, but uh, certainly for me, uh, making a making a beeline for this particular career path, you know, yeah. um, and I, I think this will resonate with musicians that are listening, that especially the ones that are sort of going for those college teaching, the elusive college yeah. teaching jobs, um, where there just there just aren't any, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, they just don't really exist. Uh, just you mentioned luck yeah i just happened to get in yeah right at the right time right at the right job yeah. uh i'm very lucky in that way yeah you know i think those of us that are working are very yeah. lucky in that way something something caused it something yeah. made it happen but you can't discount there's some sort of luck there yeah. but there there was a period for me and i wonder if it was the same for you where i was just beeline focused mm -hmm. on strategizing and making everything in my life about getting to that thing, yeah. you know, getting that one, that job or whatever it was. Yeah. And that at this point, like I've been doing the job for almost 10 years mm -hmm. and now it's like, well, 
What's you, you, where's that next carrot? What's yeah, yeah. the next thing? And then it's tenure, right? Yeah, so yeah, then yeah. then you get that carrot. And then okay, what's the next? What's the next thing that I'm chasing? Yeah. So I think all all artists probably on some level have to come to grips with this idea yeah. of just being and just doing. Yeah. Um, and hopefully that that um, hopefully you know artists can find that. Well, I mean, in a lot of ways, I would like to go back to sort of take what I know about writing and sort of bring it back to 16 year old Nick Lance, you know, writing in his notebook every day, waiting for the train yeah. right? that, you know, that Nick Lance wrote poems like every day, at least a poem a day. Yeah. And I, I do not do that anymore. Yeah. Um, because I have all these other things I'm worried about and dealing with. Um, and I think that's, that's a bad thing um, in some ways, but you know, I got to do what I got to do. Um, and so it's, you know, by the time you sort of have the experience to, um, do the kind of art you want, you've sort of taken on all kinds of other responsibilities and tasks that are going to sort of keep you away from that art. Um, and I don't know the solution to that exactly. You know, I sort of work against that constantly trying to make those two, two worlds work together. Yeah. Um, it's what summer vacations for, I guess. My my solution was to take a sabbatical yeah. and do a podcast. <laughs> exactly, right? So the sabbatical, that'll be the next thing after I get ten years. I gotta get that sabbatical <laughs> so I can get the next book written. Right. So Yeah. I well, you know, it's funny on this uh sabbatical, I you know, I sort of have you have plans and ideas for things that you want to do and then you actually get there and you find out, well, things change, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Uh there's a famous quote by Shunryu Suzuki, a student, asked him, uh, you know, what was the meaning of Zen in a nutshell? Mm -hmm. And his response was, everything changes. Yeah. And so that's something that, you know, that I definitely live by that ideal that, yeah. every, you know, you can propose something and, and you think it's going to look a certain way, but it's probably not. Yeah. Or it's going to change halfway yeah. through and not be what you expected it to be. Yeah. So how do we, uh, how do we as creative people keep things fresh and keep yeah. things interesting and, and get inspired to do new work. Yeah, what, I mean, what do you do? I mean, for me, it's, it's partly the teaching question again, you know, I talked about earlier, sort of finding ways to um, make my teaching sort of work for me creatively so that I'm, I'm reading the things and talking about the things on a daily basis that are going to keep my mind focused on poetry. So that if I do have a free few hours over the weekend, I can sit down and write a poem rather than just like, oh, I'm going to go take a nap, right? Um, and then part of it is also staying connected to the broader poetic community, like reading um, new poets. Um, I try to look every year like, okay, who won the first book prizes this year? You know, who are the finalists? And, you know, look some of those people up, you know, read the yearly anthologies for people I haven't heard of before. Um, I think one of the great things about places like Facebook, which is in many ways a big time waster, is that I get connected to so many poets and writers that I wouldn't have otherwise known about. Right. Um, and those kind of discoveries can still happen. You know, it's not going to be me digging through a box of books at a flea market um, anymore, but it, it'll be someone forwards a poem along on Facebook and I read it and I'm like, wow. I got to go buy that person's book and, you know, mm. read it. And then maybe that becomes the book that sort of drives my next sort of creative process innovation. Yeah. Right? So I wonder if you've felt this way, because this is something for me that, that I've 
had to come to terms with in, in maybe recent years is that there's very few, there are very few things that come across my desk or that I see, you know, some of my colleagues doing. Um, very few things that I find like super interesting. Yeah, it's it's really rare that I find something that I'm really excited about and really interested in. Mm-hmm. And nine times out of ten, well, I, sometimes it's it's composers and music or some recording that I heard or some uh, performer that I saw. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes it's that. But I'd say nine times out of ten, it's it's a poet. Yeah. It's a visual artist. It's a uh, filmmaker, or so, you know, something yeah. like that that really inspires me to to do mm-hmm. to respond in some yeah. way. Uh, and may, maybe that's that's just me. Uh, but do you ever find yourself inspired in other places? Uh, you know, not poetry. Do you ever find yourself just tired of, <laughs> of poetry? <laughs> yeah. and, and, and finding resonance in other in, in other places. Yeah. Or? I mean, two things I would say. One is that as a writer. Um, I give myself permission um, to not spend time on things that don't interest me. Um, you know, there are certain things that, um, you know, I do as part of my job, like maybe a, a particular student writes a poem and I need to write a response to it. And, you know, maybe it's not the most interesting poem, but I, I like that process at least of helping the student write a better poem. Um, but in my own reading, you know, if I start to read, you know, a poem from a book or something someone's forwarded me online and I'm not interested with it, you know, just discard it. Right. You know, I think there are a lot of um, canonical poems and poets that I've tried and, you know, you're supposed to like that poet. And I'm like, I do not care for Keats. So (laughs) I am not going to spend time reading Keats. Sure. And I, you know, I think it's important too to keep an open mind, obviously, because tastes are built on experience. And so you try to sort of circle back to the things that you didn't like maybe on the first or second try and try them again. But at a certain point, you know, I'm not going to spend time on it. I think the way I write poems, you know, I'm constantly drawing from sources other than poetry. Certainly I've written poems that are informed by um, poets I've read um, stylistically, but I think in terms of the subject matter of what I'm writing about, it's often something outside of poetry. Um, and I think that's useful for me as a writer to sort of cultivate that sensibility where I'm constantly on the lookout for anything that might spark a poem. Um, yeah. And I think that's one of the things poetry can do really well is it can have that kind of... Um, occasional response right that you know something comes up and boom you can write a poem to that yeah um, and you're just sort of in and out <laughs> and yeah. Deal with it. yeah yeah it, it doesn't take a huge commitment of time yeah. to to sit down and write a poem yeah. I, yeah I mean even if you even if you chip away at it over yeah. you know a period of time it's you're it's putting words on a page yeah. and not um building some yeah. uh, huge sculpture or something that could well yeah. and part of the thing with um part of the thing with musicians is that many musicians are tied to craft yeah and uh and there's nothing wrong with that and and I think that's important for yeah. musicians to develop craft and and largely what I do with students is I'm teaching them the craft yeah. of how to play their instruments you know physically you have to develop to a certain point to where you can yeah. perform and and yeah. play these instruments so part of it is tied up in craft. And certainly when I was a student, I was very concerned with craft and how fast can you play? And, yeah. you know, how clean is this going to be? And yeah. all of those sort of things. And maybe it's just part of getting a little bit older. Mm-hmm. And like you said, 
not letting things that you're not interested in drop by the wayside. Yeah. You know, not wait. How did you say it? Not wasting your time yeah. on things that you're not interested in. Yeah. Well, there subsequently for me, there's been a lot of things in music that I'm just really not interested in. Yeah. You know, uh, and I'm not interested in doing that one certain thing. Yeah. So I'm not going to do it. I still yeah. might have the the differences is that. I still deal with it every day because yeah. <laughs> my students still have to do that stuff, yeah, yeah. you know. You know, on some level I still have to be engaged with the craft of yeah. doing that. But there's always something for me. There's always a part of me that's more interested in that that creative make making something yeah. than I am about recreating something. Yeah. And like you said with balancing that with the job and all of that it's it's mm-hmm. very it's very difficult to yeah. to do that um, especially when for me my job is mostly teaching craft yeah. you know I don't get to work with I don't get to do a lot of creative work with students because I'm teaching them how to play the snare drum yeah. or how you know how yeah. to play orchestral excerpts on Timmy that's very important yeah. you know yeah. for their development of their craft I'm not you know we're not building instruments together yeah. and uh, making you know making pieces I maybe if I taught in a composition yeah. department or something I would I would do that but then again I don't have a composition degree <laughs> so I missed the yeah. boat on that one yeah. um, anyway yeah. uh, I, I think it's just an interesting idea and I, I was curious to know if you had a similar feeling for um, for that the idea yeah. of craft versus you know creative work certainly sure. there is certainly there has to be some craft in in writing poetry absolutely that you had to go through on some level and it's, and it's interesting that you mention sort of students because i think i end up sort of pushing my students towards i don't want to say a conservative idea of a poem but a very sort of middle of the road idea of what a poem is that like you know i want you to learn to play the snare drum right like right i want you to learn how to write a line in iambic pentameter i want you to learn what an image is and what the difference between a concrete word and an abstract word is. And I want those skills to be so ingrained in you that you don't really have to consciously think about them to execute them anymore, that you're not, you know, counting your beats. You can just sort of do it. Um, And, you know, I don't use craft that way at this point anymore. You know, something like prosody, I might take a line of my poem that sounds a little funky to me and I might try scanning it to see where the beats are. And, um, and then I can sometimes diagnose what the problem is. Um, but I don't, you know, I don't compose in metered verse and, you know, I don't think about when I sit down to write a poem, like, well, this first line has to be an image because images are what make good poems. Like I don't think about that sort of craft issue stuff consciously, but that's often what I'm, sort of drilling into my students because they they haven't had that experience. And I think eventually, once you have those tools at your disposal, that's when you can sort of use them more effectively. And I don't know. I mean, I think, I mean, you talk about that, you wish maybe like you were creating instruments with students and things like that. And I, I have that feeling sometimes with my poetry students. I was like, well, why don't we just work on a project together? And I think they're you can sort of create those opportunities too. Um, you know, this translation project thing I'm going to be working on with my grad students this semester, it's, it's partly collaborative. You know, I want to know what they can show me about the process of translation. Right. Um, 
but you know at the same time you know i'm the expert in the room when it comes to poetry and i have to be the expert in the room um and so that doesn't leave as much room for um, that kind of collaboration with students is not like you said something there that i want to touch on about teaching yeah uh because like you said, it's part of what we, those of us that are in the creative world, uh, part of what we have to do is teach in order to make a living yeah. to do the create yeah. to do the creative stuff. So let's talk about teaching for a second. Okay. And there was something that you said there. You said you have to be the expert in the room. Yeah. I wonder if you've had a similar problem with students who, uh, whose conception of their own abilities. <laughs> far exceed their actual abilities and how you uh, navigate them towards uh, part of it. You know, I I've had this discussion with, with, with other folks over the years, last couple of years too, about, you know, in the, in the age of information, for instance, for, for musicians, you know, pretty much every, pretty much every major piece of music is available to listen to at your fingertips. Yeah. And it creates a sense of expectation in us that, well, of, of course, all the Beethoven symphonies are available for you to listen to on YouTube, multiple performances, no doubt. Yeah. Um, why haven't you listened to them? You know, <laughs> they're available to yeah. you. So there, it creates sort of an expectation. For the students' part, they don't know how to suss out what's yeah. good and what's bad because there's so much information, and yeah. because there's so much, all information seemingly is equal. Yeah. So I'll just listen to whatever I want. And, you know, there's no way for them to suss out who is the expert on this given thing. And I I even read an article and maybe it was in the uh, New Yorker or something about the, um, the death of experts, Mm -hmm. that there are no expert, everyone's an expert. But we have to, uh, I think as teachers, we have to maintain this idea that we, we actually are the expert on this subject. And so how do you deal with, with that issue uh, in your teaching? Well, and it really, it varies from situation to situation, but I, I've encountered that. And the, the specific form in which I've encountered that is this idea of the subjectivity of creative work. Um, that I have had students literally say to me, well, it's creative writing, therefore it's completely subjective and no one can pass any kind of judgment on it at all. Yeah. Which, you know, I think is, it's an obvious cop-out and it's a defense mechanism and it's a way to protect oneself from criticism. Right. Um, and my response is like, well, just because there are many right answers doesn't mean there aren't wrong answers. <laughs> you know, there are wrong ways to write a poem. You know, there are many right ways to do it. And I hope I can teach my students some of them um, but there are definitely wrong moves you can make. And I, I can hope I can explain why um, those things are problems. Um, and sometimes I've been successful winning students over and other times they have stuck very closely to that. You know, well, you are not qualified to evaluate my work because no one is qualified to evaluate my work. And I think um, one of the things I've liked about teaching here is that I, I encounter very few students who have that attitude. Yeah. Um, but in other schools where I've taught, that 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 has been a real challenge. And, you know, you, what you can do is you can sort of plant the seeds and you can say, well, you know, you can lay out your project for what you think a good poem is and show them the examples that you want to show them. And then maybe five years down the line, they'll be like, oh, 
Professor Lance was totally right. And I know I had that experience with things that professors told me in college that I didn't really accept until grad school or later. And then the other thing is, you know, you say, well, you know, go prove me wrong. You know, go go get that poem published in a great magazine and then I will I will eat my humble pie. <laughs> but until then, <laughs> I'm the one in charge. I'm the one giving you the grade. And for the, the course of the semester anyway, you know, let's just keep that in mind that, you know, the way I'm teaching you to write a poem is not the only way necessarily to do it, but I'm teaching you a way to write a poem and you are being graded on how well you can learn that. Yeah. Um, and that usually wins most of the rest of them over. <laughs> I think at some point, every creative person, uh, e either it happens uh, when they're in school and in training and taking classes, or maybe it happens once they're out and they're they're making work and be yeah. that poetry or whatever, that they have to deal with criticism. Yeah. And on some level, you have to learn how to deal with criticism. How are you teaching students to deal with criticism? I mean, you said sometimes they don't accept it, but yeah. is there any instance where you've been able to, to break through and, and teach students about uh, creative criticism? Yeah. Well, one of the sort of foundations of the creative writing classroom is the workshop. And this is a system, it's, it's flawed, but it's sort of the most common one in which students distribute their work to each other, everyone reads it, and then we come together as a group and discuss it critically. And I think that is sort of one of the best things that the workshop does is that it accustoms young writers to thinking about the ways other people read their work. Because it's very easy when you write something to have sort of a blind spot for the gap between what's in your mind and what you've actually put on the page. And, you know, someone may write a poem about their mother, say, and the mother in the poem does not come off at all the way they think because they know their mother, right? But they haven't put on the page what they need to in order to convey what they want. And so that process of hearing what other people have noticed and what they've picked up on starts to force you to think about sort of how other people see your work. Um, not just like, what do I think I'm writing, but what do I think other people are reading, you know? And to, to be able to actually put yourself in someone else's shoes and read something you've written as a stranger. Um, and that's one of the, I think the best things that the workshop can do and through sort of habituation and practice kind of wears down those initial defenses of like, Oh, don't criticize my creative work. That's, you know, about my family because you're criticizing my family somehow, you know, that all these defensive crouches that students can fall into, um, in those situations. Um, and so I think that's one of the best things that the workshop does is to sort of practice that kind of reception of um, criticism from what I like to cultivate in my classes is a workshop that is kind but rigorous, you know, that we're supporting each other, but we're not letting each other get away with anything. Um, and so I, I talk to them a lot about just the, the rationale behind that and why we do workshop um, and then sort of let that repetition of hearing the criticism sort of do its work. Um, and I certainly have um, little voices in my head from grad school where I think, well, hmm, what would Kevin say about this poem, right? Mm, you know, yeah. this is oh, from yeah. like more than 10 years ago now. But I, I can imagine, you know, sort of what some of my key sort of workshop 
compatriots would say about things I've written. Yeah. You know, would Cynthia let me get away with this line? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you start to have a sense with you, when you're trying to like kid yourself and you're writing like you're, you're trying to get away with something you know you can't get away with. And that, that's when those sort of internalized voices from workshop can come in handy that huh. you've trained yourself to think about how other people see your work. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Uh, do you have some closing thoughts or anything else that you'd like to uh, maybe one more point? Otherwise, maybe close us out with a with a poem or two. Sure. I, I can read you another poem. I'll read you one um, that's uh it's an Ars Poetica poem, which just means art of poetry. And so poems about writing poems. Ah, very meta. Yeah. Okay. Uh, this particular one is maybe a little bit more elliptical in its approach to that. Um, it's uh, sort of inspired by taxidermy, though you'll see that taxidermy doesn't actually appear literally in the poem. Okay. Um, but I was thinking a lot about sort of taxidermy as a practice, again, of sort of trying to make something dead seem alive. So that's, I think, a lot of what I try to do with a poem is you just try to make words on the page seem alive, like that you're creating an environment or an idea or an image that you want to seem vibrant and vivid. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was thinking about sort of taxidermy as a controlling metaphor for that. And so I thought about uh, that when I was writing this poem, which is Taxidermy, Ars Poetica. After the tornado destroys the house, I'm the doorframe left standing. I'm the gallons of hunger inside the mosquito. My name can only be spelled in a dead alphabet. I'm the city stricken from official record. Some hunched bureaucrat working by candlelight must scratch my name from every book and map. Let's say a boy outgrows his shoes. Later, he drowns in a river. Then the river dries up. One day, his parents drive to what used to be a river and throw the baby shoes that used to belong to their son into what used to be the water. And me, I'm the bridge they're standing on. <laughs> That's a nice uplifting one to close <laughs> off your show. Well, <laughs> yeah. Well, Nick, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. And with that, we conclude this two-part episode of Standing in the Stream conversations with creatives again i'm your host john lane you can follow me on twitter at that john lane you can find the show links and show notes on my website john-lane.com and follow the show on facebook simply search for standing in the stream thanks to nick lance for visiting the home studio and having a conversation thanks to danny clay for our theme music you can find him online at dclaymusic.com I'll be back next time for more conversations with creatives. Thanks for listening.